pray that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts will give you glory. Lord, speak to us so that we will hear and help us to be responsive to your word, the living word, today. Amen. We've all already been asking for hands up, but I wonder how many of us have actually come from farming families. Hands up those who had a father or a grandfather um, that was a farmer. Oh, quite a lot. Yeah, thank you. My, my grandfather was a farmer in Suffolk, and as a child, I loved watching the cows being milked and to help with their feed and, of course, collecting the hen's eggs. But a special treat was to go with my grandfather to the mill and to watch the flour from the wheat being weighed and bagged. Times have changed. Most of us live in the city, but many of us still have our roots in the land and enjoy growing fruit and veg in our gardens or perhaps on an allotment. In an agricultural nation, such as Israel, at the time of Elijah, where the economy is dependent on the land, God-given rain is absolutely essential. Without it, there's no food, and the people perished. Also, when people turn away from God in a theocracy, a nation governed directly by God, they too will perish. Rain and God the stuff of life. Our Bible passage for today, 1 Kings chapter 18, is all about God, Yahweh, restoring his supremacy in the hearts and lives of his people, Israel. In order to do this, the Lord has put the people under extreme measures. And true to his word, through his servant Elijah, there's been no rain in the land for three years. Why was this? Because the Israelites then turned away from worshipping the Lord their God and turned instead to Baal, one of the Phoenician gods of storm and fertility, who was said to bestow upon man and soil the blessings of fruitfulness. So how had this happened? In short, Israel had lost their love for God. They'd not had a God-fearing king for almost a hundred years. Their leaders had all done evil in the sight of the Lord. And the present king, King Ahab, was no exception. In fact, we're told in 1 Kings 16 and verse 30, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He made an alliance with Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and married his daughter Jezebel. Jezebel came with much spiritual baggage. She was a passionate evangelist for Baal, and she was determined to establish a bridgehead for the faith of her ancestors when she came to Israel. She brought with her her own horde of Baal enthusiasts, skilled in fertility theology, and she gave them free board in the royal cafeteria. She converted Ahab to Baal worship. 
She butchered Yahweh's prophets and she smashed Yahweh's worship centers. No wonder that many of the priests and the people who'd been faithful to God in Israel had fled to the southern kingdom of Judah. This was the age of Ahab, when the word of God didn't count. Into this situation, God appointed Elijah the prophet as his representative in place of both king and priest. Elijah appears suddenly on the scene, and little is known of his background. But his name tells it all. His name means, my God is Yahweh. The Lord is his God. And his role is to be the bearer of God's word and to stand out for God. As we see in the beginning of our reading, he and Ahab clash. And the reason is that Ahab openly and defiantly opposed God's word. Elijah's sudden appearance reminds us that we don't need to despair when we see great movements of evil achieving success. Success in the world. And we're very conscious of that at the moment. For we can be sure that God has already prepared his counter-movement in unexpected places and surprising ways. The situation, however bad, and I was horrified this morning to hear of um, the Christians just having to flee from Mosel, where they had been for many hundreds of years. The situation, however bad, is never hopeless, because at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his person and his plans to ensure that his cause will never fail. God is truly sovereign over all the earth. So the earth was dry. There hadn't been any rain for three years. The god Baal had been impotent, yet the hearts of the people of Israel hadn't returned to their god Yahweh. However, God in his mercy, not wanting his people to sink any further into sin, determines to save his people and send rain again. We see that in chapter 18, chapter 18 and verse 1. But first of all, Baal had to be clearly and publicly discredited, lest the people should say, oh, Baal's recovered, and somehow believe that the rain has come from him. So there's going to be a God contest in Israel with the clear mission question, who is the real God? Is it Baal or Yahweh? For us Christians here in the 21st century, this this question may seem like a non-question. So why was Baal worship so attractive in 9th century Israel? Four quick reasons. One, it had the powerful appeal of royal sanction. The leaders of the nation believed it and promoted it. And if you wanted to get on, you kowtowed to the rich and powerful, a bit like taking the boss out to dinner. Secondly, 
It was attractive because it had history. It went back hundreds of years. Do all religions who go back many hundreds of years, are they true? Thirdly, Baal worship appeared relevant to daily life. It appealed to their felt needs for food and fertility. And fourthly, it really appealed to their sensuality. Free sex was included in Baal liturgy. But despite its appeal, and we can appreciate perhaps similar attractions in our secular society today, what really mattered was whether Baal or Yahweh is the real God. So from verse 18 onwards, we see how Elijah comes to Ahab as the Lord's messenger to confront Ahab and to challenge the people. Ahab charges Elijah with a crime against the state, while Elijah charges Ahab with the greater crime of failing in his duty to follow the Lord's commands and in so doing, breaking his covenant with God. Elijah makes it clear that it was Ahab's disobedience that was at the root source of the present calamity. So with the upper hand and with the word of God, Ahab is instructed to assemble the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth who ate at the royal table and to meet him on Mount Carmel, a high ridge near the Mediterranean Sea where the drought may have been less apparent and the power of Baal to nurture life may have been stronger. Once there, along with many bystanders, Elijah speaks, verse 21, with great irony. How long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Apparently, the word in Hebrew for waver is the same as that used later for danced. In other words, Elijah is asking, why are you engaging in a futile religious dance? Why are you trying to interweave the different religions? Alliance to God demands commitment and responsibility. You must make up your minds to follow God or Baal. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. You can't be neutral. Either you are for Christ or you, or you are against him. Elijah's challenge must have hit home for the people's response is silence. In verses 22 to 24, we see how Elijah puts forward his proposal for the God contest, requesting the real God to show up. And the people agree. And having laid out the directions for the contest, Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first and maybe choose the best bull. Having prepared the sacrifice, 
this massive group of 850 prophets begin to call on their god Baal to show up and to answer by sending fire. You can almost imagine the scene, which gets noisier and noisier as the time goes on and more and more frantic with dancing and yelling and gashing themselves with knives, but with no response. At noon, probably three hours or more since they began, Elijah begins to taunt and to mock them. Shout louder, he says. Surely he's a god. Either he's occupied, or he's preoccupied, or he's even on the loo. (laughs) Everything gets even more frantic. The afternoon passes, but despite all their efforts, there's still no response. No one answered, no one paid attention. Verse 29. Baal was not there. He hadn't shown up. So to the resolution of the contest. And I want you to notice the differences in Elijah's approach. First, verse 32 He repairs the altar of the Lord, which had been left in ruins on Mount Carmel, possibly since the destruction by Jezebel's agents. Elijah purposely builds an altar in the name of the Lord. It wasn't the same as the other altar. It was a separate one. So imagine him building it stone by stone, prayer by prayer. One stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, carefully representing the unity of Israel in spite of her political division. For whatever was about to happen next concerned the entire nation, not just the 10 northern nations of Israel, but the two tribes in Judah as well. He douses the entire sacrifice in water and shows that he's up to no tricks. Where he got the water from, we don't know. But I guess it was fairly precious. But he orders the water to be poured over the altar again and again and again until it's completely saturated and runs down filling the trench below. And then stepping forward, he publicly prays. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your command. His prayer calls on all that God is, the sovereign God, all that God has been to their forefathers, and all that God will be, God in Israel. It reinforces that Elijah is God's servant, that he's prepared to stand out as one who follows Yahweh, the Lord, in all he says and does. God is the Lord of his life. His prayer is concise, clear, and passionate. Answer me, Lord, answer me, he pleads not for his own good or for his own reputation, 
But so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 37. Then the fire of the Lord fell. It came down from heaven. It burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They recognized the holy fire of God and fell prostrate before him, as we will do one day when we see him face to face. Although their hearts had been so far from him, they knew without a shadow of doubt that Yahweh, the Lord, the real God, the sovereign God, had shown up. It was he and no other that through God's grace they would now worship and give their full allegiance. We also know that the Son of the one true God, Jesus, came down in human form. John chapter 1 and verse 14. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. He rose again so that we too might have life in him. It's Jesus that has shown us his Father God and calls us to serve him, not only as Savior, but as Lord. Who is the Lord of your life? Jesus or some other? If it's Jesus, then we must serve him without compromise. And then we come to verse 40. It's a verse we wish wasn't there, really. But if we fail to understand this verse, it shows how far we are from understanding the true holiness of God. Our God demands our wholehearted allegiance. And it is he who someday will deal ever so severely with all those who lead others astray. He says that in Luke chapter 17 and verses 1 and 2. So we read that Elijah, acting on the authority of the Lord, carries out the death sentence pronounced in Mosaic law for prophets of pagan deities. All the prophets of Baal are slaughtered in the Kishon Valley. I'd like to end by returning to Elijah's prayer and sharing with you briefly why it's been such an inspiration and help in my life. I don't think we should automatically identify ourselves with Elijah because he was called by God for a special role at a particular time in Israel's history. Nevertheless, as I seek to obey God's word, Elijah's prayer has become one of the most foundational prayers in my life. It was first pointed out to me over the lunch table many years ago by a mission leader who'd served the Lord for many years in the Congo, as it was called then. It was a prayer he'd prayed every day, 
and I knew that the Lord had blessed his ministry. Years later, when I was working as a care manager in a residential home for those with long-term mental illness, I found myself very much in the minority as a Christian on the staff. Some were just not interested, but some were quite anti-Christian. And one member of staff in particular tried to find fault in what I did nearly every day. So I began the habit of praying Elijah's prayer as I drove to work each day, and particularly in that last mile. O oh Lord, let it be known today that you are God, that I am your servant, and that I do all these things at your command. It didn't altogether change the situation, but it did change my attitude. It made me focus on the Lord and the work that he had given me. It took away the fear of my colleague, as I knew that God was in charge. And it strengthened me in my Christian witness there. If you told me I was going to be there seven years, I would have died. But over those years, the Lord gave me daily grace to serve him and to be his witness in a difficult place. And it changed things. Not only for me, but for the residents. So I commend Elijah's prayer to you, whatever your situation. 1 Kings, chapter 18, and verse 36. O Lord, let it be known today that you are God, that I am your servant, and that I do all these things at your command. When we pray in faith, the real God will show up. God, our merciful and gracious God, will provide a way back. And God, our sovereign, holy God, will be at work re-establishing his kingdom. Praise be to him. Amen.